Welcome back, everybody. I hope you uh, found some coffee. If you're the type that drinks coffee this late in the evening or some water, maybe a cookie, a restroom, whatever it is that you need to make it through the rest of the evening. In our, uh, in our last session, we talked about uh, uh, the parable of the talents that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, with particular reference to idolatry in our works, in our, our, our jobs, in our work. Uh, uh, the uh, error that we as Christians often fall into of making our jobs, letting our jobs become the most important source of significance and meaning and purpose in our lives. Uh, so that uh, when things are going well, we feel great. And when things are not going so well on the job, uh, we don't feel so great. Well, in this session, I want to go to a, a different story in the Bible, um, but one that I think is just as fascinating, and, and talk about the other side of it, the, the other error that we as Christians often fall into, and that is when we become idle in our jobs. That's spelled I-D-L-E. Um, the two words sound the same, right? Idle, I-D-O-L, and idle, I-D-L-E, um, but they mean sort of diametrically opposed things, right? On the one hand, if you make an idol of your work, you're making it the most important source of significance and meaning and purpose in your life. If you become idle in your work, that means something else. And we're going to talk about that as we look at another Bible study or Bible story this evening. So uh, this story is actually too long for us to read the entire thing. But if you'd like to sort of follow along as I talk through this story and tell it and pull some applications from it, you can turn to Genesis beginning in chapter 37 and going all the way through chapter 50. So 14 chapters that tell us the story of the life of Joseph. Um, If we were to take the time to read it, it would take up just about an hour. So we're not going to take the time to do that. However, I'm going to guess that most of you, if you're Christians, if you've been a Christian for very long, you're probably very familiar with the story of Joseph. Uh, It's a well-known, it's a well-loved story. Most of us, when we think of the story of Joseph, how he went from being in a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, all the way up to becoming the grand vizier, second in command of all Egypt, with command, with, with command authority to bring grain into the barns and tell people what to do. When we, when we read that story, most essentially, we probably think of it as the story of a kind of local boy made big, a, a rags to riches story. It's sort of the, the Bible's version of the little orphan Annie. Are you all familiar with the little orphan Andy? We have the little orphan Joseph here. At least that's how we commonly understand it as Christians, but... Actually, the story of Joseph is not at all a little orphan Annie story. It's not the story of a local boy made big or the story, a rags to riches story. The story of Joseph isn't even really mainly about Joseph at all. It's a story about God and his amazing power and sovereignty worked out in the stuff, the dirt of human life, especially one human life in particular, and that is Joseph. So the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50 is not primarily meant to lead us just to feel good for Joseph, this mistreated little boy who becomes a king. The story of Joseph is meant to lead us to rejoice and marvel at God and his incredible sovereignty over the whole thing. Now, instead of reading through the entire story, which would be great fun, uh, 
uh, it's an amazing story, and, and it's, it, it's fun. I've seen, I've seen people actually read these enormous passages of Scripture um, and just marvel at what God has done in the story. But we're not going to do that. In lieu of reading through the whole story, I just want to kind of run through it with you very quickly in case you don't remember some of the details, because some of those details become very important. Uh, as we try to apply that to our lives. The story opens in Genesis chapter 37 with this little shepherd boy, Joseph, having a series of dreams in which his family, both his parents and his 11 brothers, bow down to him as their king. The details of the, uh, of the dreams are fascinating, but they're not important for our purposes, but, but that's what they mean. You've got the 11 brothers and the two parents bowing down to Joseph as king. Well, not surprisingly, the brothers in particular are incensed at this, Joseph, perhaps unwisely, goes and tells his brother that he's had these dreams. So, hey, guys, Leah, I had this dream. And all 11 of you who are all older and bigger and more muscular than me and can pound me are bowing down to me and I'm going to be your king one day. Isn't that awesome? That's what God told me. Brothers don't like this, so they decide to kill him. Well, one of the brothers uh, has a turn of conscience at the very moment that they're about to kill him. And so the brothers decide finally that they're just going to sell Joseph to a bunch of traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, who are headed south down into Egypt. Joseph is sold into this caravan of traders. He arrives there in Egypt and he's bought in the slave market by the captain of Pharaoh's guard, whose name was Potiphar. Well, in time, Joseph works hard in the house and the Lord blesses him with, the, with success in all that he does. And Joseph, in time, is put in charge of Potiphar's entire house. Well, he worked there and worked there relatively happily until one day when Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph to commit adultery with her. The Bible even goes so far as to say that the dude was very handsome and Potiphar's wife wanted to commit adultery with him. And so she, she tried several different times. Joseph put her off every single time and, and remained faithful to God during every single one of those advances. But during one of those advances, she grabbed Joseph's cloak and he fled out of the house. Potiphar comes home, asks, what is going on? Potiphar's wife is standing there with Joseph's cloak, and she blames the whole situation on Joseph, and Potiphar believes his wife instead of Joseph and throws Joseph in jail. Joseph stays in jail for upward of two years, and there are two other very important prisoners there in the jail with him, Pharaoh's chief baker and Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. Now, what exactly these guys do is sort of up for grabs, uh, but you can sort of get the gist from their titles. The chief baker would be the guy who bakes. The chief cupbearer would be the guy who bears cups. <laughs> Whatever that means. Anyway, these two officials, they were fairly high officials of Pharaoh, were thrown into prison with him. And there's one particular night when both of these guys, the baker and the cupbearer, have dreams that they can't figure out what it means. Again, the details of the story are, uh, are very interesting, but, but not important for our purposes. They're talking about these dreams with one another, and Joseph says, you know, I serve a God, I serve Yahweh, uh, and he can interpret dreams. So, so why don't you tell me the details of your dream, and, and I'll tell you what they're about. So the two men, the baker and the cupbearer, both tell Joseph the meaning of their dreams, and Joseph says, yes, I know what those mean. The Lord has revealed to me what, what your dream means. They mean, for both of you, they actually have sort of the same meaning. Both your heads are going to be lifted up. He says, for you, Mr. Cupbearer, your head is going to be lifted up in the sense that you're going to be restored to your job. You know, it's, a, it's an image of Pharaoh sort of, you know, lifting his chin up and, and restoring him to his job. For you, Mr. Baker, 
your head's going to be lifted up too, but like in the sense that they're going to chop it off and lift it up. So not quite the same thing. Well, three days later, on Pharaoh's birthday, it all happened just exactly like Joseph said. The chief cupbearer was called into the throne room and his head was lifted up. He was restored to his position. The baker was also called into the throne room. He was condemned by Pharaoh and his head was lifted off, not so much up. Two years later, Pharaoh himself had a couple of dreams that he couldn't interpret. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And he goes, aha, Pharaoh, I know that you've had a couple of dreams that you don't know the meaning of and you can't interpret them. And I know that you've tried to get all the magicians of Egypt and all the dream interpreters of Egypt to to interpret these dreams for you. And no one's been able to do it to your satisfaction. I, I know a guy, he's in your prison, actually. Who says that he serves a God who can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh says, call him. So the cupbearer goes to the prison and they call Joseph up. And Joseph talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh describes the dream. The details are these seven first fat cows that come up out of the Nile. And then following the fat cows, there are these seven gaunt, skinny cows that come up out of the Nile. Seven more of them. And then the seven skinny cows eat up the fat cows. That's kind of the details of the dream. And Joseph says, I know what that means. That had to be given to him by God, right? And what would you say if Pharaoh described that to you? He says, look, here's what it means. What it means is that the fat cows correspond to seven years of amazing abundance that God is going to give to you and to, to Egypt. There will be plenty of food, grain, more than, you can, more than you can eat. They're going to be fat years, just like those cows. But following on the heels of those seven fat years, there are going to be seven years of searing famine when there's nothing to eat. And all the fat of the previous good years is going to be eaten up and destroyed by the seven years of, of famine. So Pharaoh says, I, I believe you. What, Joseph, would you suggest that we, that we do about this? And Joseph says, here's what I would suggest you do. You'll, you're going to need to build some granaries and you're going to need to, to, to hold abundance in those granaries to feed the people during the, the seven years of, of famine. So Pharaoh says, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to make you the second in command of all Egypt. So he puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger and says, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. But essentially you speak for me, your word is my word. So Joseph does, during the seven years of fatness, gathers food into granaries and prepares for the famine. In the famine, he he sells grain to the people and they're able to survive. The, The interesting thing about the story though is that during the famine, Joseph's brothers, you remember who who sold him into slavery in Egypt the first place are caught up in this famine and so they decided they're going to go down to Egypt because word has gone out that of all the places in the world affected by this famine, Egypt is the one place that still has food. So his brothers come down south from Canaan and they meet with Joseph. They don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. But he sells them some grain and he he, he asks them, starts to ask them about their family. You know, how's your father and do you have a father and are there any more of you? You There there are 10 of you here, but... Do you have any other brothers? And they say, yes, we have this, this youngest brother of ours, Benjamin. And Joseph, of course, knows Benjamin, but they don't know him. And so he says, here's what I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and get your little brother and bring him back to me. And all kinds of hijinks happen during this whole thing, right? They go home and they get Benjamin and they bring him back. And Joseph tests them in various ways to, to see how it, how it goes. But at the end of the story, Joseph finally reveals himself to his, to his brothers, you know, he pulls off the headdress or whatever he was wearing and he, he weeps and he, he, he reveals himself. And the end of the story is actually Joseph bringing his entire family down into 
Egypt and feeding them and giving them a house in a certain place in Egypt. And, this, and Joseph eventually is, uh, dies and is buried, embalmed, put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the story ends. Here, I think, is the main idea of that whole story. If you were to read it, what, whatever your circumstances, no matter what kind of situation you find yourself in, whatever the details of your circumstance, whatever your circumstances, recognize that God has a purpose for it all. Even if that's not the purpose you expected or even wanted. Whatever your circumstances, recognize that God has a purpose for it all. Even if that's not the purpose you expected or even wanted. And I think that main idea, and I think the things that are taught in the story of Joseph have an amazing relevance really to all the details of our lives. They have to do with our parenthood, they have to do with our church life, they have to do if they have to do with hard providences that come into our lives, like diagnoses of disease or cancer or other ailments. But you know, I think that main idea that God has a purpose for every detail in your life has a particular relevance also for our jobs. And I think the story of Joseph has just a particular resonance, just a really interesting resonance when we consider it in light of our jobs. Do you notice in this story all the different jobs that Joseph had as this story goes along? I mean, he, first at the beginning of the story, he's a shepherd, right? That's his, that's his job. When he goes down to Egypt, he becomes a, a slave in the house of Potiphar. That's in the, the second job. Then he becomes the head slave. Then he becomes a prisoner. Then he becomes the head prisoner. Then he becomes an advisor to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And then he becomes the second in command of all Egypt. Sort of the vice Pharaoh, right? The grand vizier, they would have called it. It's just an astonishing life. And I think there are some lessons, even some surprising ones, that we can learn from this story. So we're going to focus in on a few points of application. And I'll give them to you as we go, just like in the last session. So here's the first thing. First, and above all, whatever you do, remember that you are doing it for the king. Now, some of you are looking back at your notes and saying, oh, goodness, that's exactly the same thing the guy said for the first point of the last sermon. And you're right. Now, all the points aren't going to be like that, so chill out. But, but that is, ab- above everything else, that's what I want you to take away from this weekend. Whatever you do, no matter the circumstances, you're doing it for the king. That's what I want you to take away, both from the parable of the talents and from this story of Joseph. You know, we pastors, any pastor in here will tell you that we pastors take uh, enormous comfort from Paul saying in one or the other of his letters, look, yes, I realize I'm writing the same thing to you that I did in my last letter, but it's no trouble for me to write it, and it's probably good for you to hear it again anyway. We pastors take great comfort in that. So it's no trouble for me to make this point again, and it's probably good for you to hear it a second time. So here we go. First and above all, whatever you do, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, remember that you do it for the king. That was true of Joseph. In every single one of Joseph's jobs, whether he was a shepherd or a slave or the head slave or the lowest prisoner or the highest prisoner or the advisor to the king or the grand vizier, he understood that he was working for the Lord. Now, do you remember the two main problems that we've been talking about that Christians often fall into when they... Uh, when we think about our jobs. One one of them that we talked about 
uh, a little bit in the last session was that we can make an idol of our jobs. It can become the most significant thing that we do. But there's another problem that I want to talk to you about more in this session. And that is that we can become idle in our jobs. Not make an idol of them, but become idle in them. Now, idleness in your job can take the form of like physically and mentally doing nothing. You can be idle in your job, just sitting at your desk, twiddling your thumbs and sort of looking up at the ceiling going, when is five o'clock going to come? Just, you know, playing solitaire on your computer, you know, doing, doing nothing, wasting your employer's time. You can be idle in your job like that. You can also be idle when it comes to your job by doing nothing and not even having a job, but relying on someone else to provide for you. Whether that's the church or your parents or your friends or whatever it is, you just are not taking responsibility to work. You can be idle in your job like that. And the thing is, the Bible warns us against that kind of physical, mental idleness all the time. You know, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you, you, should, you should work with your hands. You should do something productive so that you're able to make enough money to provide for your family and have some left over to, to give to others. In fact, he says, if, if you're not working, if you're not doing something productive with your hands so that you're able to provide for your family, if you can't provide for your family, Paul says, you are worse than an unbeliever. So that kind of physical and mental idleness, idleness of the hands can be a real problem for Christians. But, you know, I would guess that for most of us in this room, our problem is not so much idleness of the hands. I mean, we're, all, we're busy, right? We have things going on, most of us. Most of us don't struggle with doing nothing. I mean, we are constantly about this and that and got to do this and got to do that. We, we are busy. I mean, it used to be when I was younger that when you meet somebody at church, or in a hallway or whatever, you shake their hand and say, you, you ask the question just as a, as a politeness, right? How are you? The, the answer to that question, the stock answer to that question, if you didn't want to break into a whole conversation with a person, used to be fine. I'm fine, right? You remember, maybe, maybe that was true here in Dubai a few years ago. How are you doing? I'm fine. That is not our answer anymore, is it? These days, when you shake somebody's hand and they ask you how you are, the stock answer is, I'm busy. I'm busy. Maybe you'll throw the fine in too. Fine, but busy. Busy, but fine. Can go both ways. But we'll we'll always throw the busy in because we are busy. Our problem is not idleness of the hands. But idleness is not always idleness of the hands. There is a much more insidious and dangerous idleness that I think those of us in this room are more prone to struggle with. And that is not so much idleness of the hands as it is idleness of the heart. In other words, we're busy with our hands, but we've just utterly lost sight in our hearts of why God has us in the job in the first place. We start to think of it as a necessary evil just to survive. I, I, have, to, I have to do this job just because I got I to feed my family and this is just a necessary evil. Or, you know, sometimes we, we pull out the, uh, the world's old slogan, I, I, I work in order to live. So, so I work in order to make money so I can get to the really important things of life, like, like supporting the church with money, or even let's make it to the weekend so that I can do the fun things in life. That's why I work, but, but work in itself is, is not important. That's what it means to go idle in the heart. You just lose sight of the fact 
that God has a purpose in your job, that it's not just a necessary evil. I mean, Justin mentioned at, at the beginning in the, uh, in the introduction that on average, you and I are going to spend something like 80,000 hours of our lives in a job. That's incredible, isn't it? And if God has so ordered our human lives that 80,000 hours are going to be spent in one particular arena, isn't it more likely that God intends for that arena to be one of the main means of him working in us and sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus and glorifying himself than it is that that arena is just a necessary evil? God has a purpose for your job, no matter what the mechanics of it are. And that is that you would be made more like Jesus, that Jesus would be glorified. So that's what idleness of the heart means, is to lose sight of that, to lose sight of the fact that God has a, a purpose. You remember those two verses that I read to you in the last, uh, in the last session? There was Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Work with a sincere heart. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And then there was Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Remember how that just, just cuts the root of idolizing work? Because if you understand that you're working for the king, ultimately... It's very hard for your heart to wrap up around the job itself. You realize that the the job is a means to an end of serving the king. Well, those same two verses, that same idea that you're working for the king, also cuts the root of idleness when it comes to your work. You see how? It's because if you're doing work for the king, if you're doing your work in service to him because he has deployed you to that job for right now in your life, you're going to do it with excellence. Not even so much because you love the job, but because you love him. And he's the one that puts you there. This is the big idea. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, whatever the mechanics of your job, whatever you do, remember that you're doing it for the king. It will cut the root of idolatry and it will cut the root of idleness. Repeatedly in your life. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. And I I think these next few points that I'm going to make are particularly helpful to you if you struggle with idleness of the heart in your work. I think they'll be particularly helpful to you. Second, from the story of Joseph, remember that God is sovereign over every detail of your life, including your job. Remember that God is sovereign over every single detail of your life, including your job. I think, in fact, that that is the main point of the story of Joseph's life. God is teaching us in a thousand different ways through this story that he is orchestrating everything in meticulous detail. That happens in Joseph's lives. Every tiny, seemingly insignificant little event is happening at God's directions. He's, he's causing these events to happen one right after the other in order to bring about a specific outcome that he wants to have happen. I mean, do you ever wonder in, in this story, if this is just a rags to riches story, if we're supposed to marvel at, oh, wow, Joseph goes from being, you know, shepherd to king, shepherd boy to king, if, if that's the point of the story... Why the dreams at the beginning? I mean, think about, think about making a movie out of the life of Joseph. 
and pretend you don't know how it ends. You're not going to start by telling the sort of, you know, give, giving the big reveal at the beginning of the story. You're, you're not going to like take the, the last scene and put it at the beginning and say this is how the story is going to end because it doesn't make for a good story. I remember, this was a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to a, a movie. I think it was one of the Iron Man movies. Anyway, we go into the theater, we buy the tickets, and uh, head down into the theater, and we take a left turn into the theater. And uh, we're a little bit late, so unsurprisingly, the movie had, had already started. And so we sat down, and over the course of about 10 minutes, we start to, we start to realize, wow, they, they sure are giving away a lot of the like puzzles of this movie right at the beginning. I mean, why are they doing this? And then my wife finally, finally punches me and says, we went in the wrong theater. <laughs> we had walked into the end of Iron Man and we should have turned right instead of left. But what happened is that having seen the last 10 minutes of the movie, it was ruined for us even after we went into the, to the one we were supposed to be into. That's kind of what the dreams do. In this story, they, they ruin the they ruin the reveal. They ruin the story, right? Because you know what's gonna what's gonna happen. So, so if this is just a rags to riches story, if you're supposed to be amazed at Joseph, those dreams are not necessary. In fact, they're they're kind of anticlimactic. But if, on the other hand, this story is not so much about Joseph, but it is so much about showing you. And maybe even Joseph's family and brothers and everyone else. If it's about showing us that God is sovereign over absolutely every detail, then the dreams are incredible. It's God calling his shot. You know that phrase? God calling his shot? It's like when Babe Ruth, the great American baseball player, stands at the plate. He's about to bat. He'd swirl a bat around and point at the fences, right? On this pitch, I'm going to hit a home run. And then he'd step up to the plate. Whack! The ball would go out. Everybody roar. He called his shot. That's what God's doing with the dreams. He's calling his shot. He's saying, no matter what happens here, I'm in control. And this is how the whole thing is going to end up. I will hit a home run on this pitch. And then he does. It's also what Joseph meant with that amazing summary statement. It's famous in chapter 50, verse 20. Where he says to his brothers, his brothers are, are repenting, right? They're, they're scared of what's going to happen here. And, and they say, oh, Joseph, we repent of selling you into slavery and all the rest. And Joseph tells them in chapter 50, verse 20, you should write that down. Genesis 50, verse 20, and then you should go study this. He says to his brothers, you meant it all for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, now don't go over that too fast. Think about it. He says, God meant it for good. Meant it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It doesn't say, even though this is how 90% of Christians will read it, it does not say, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. It doesn't say, you meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. It doesn't say, you gave me lemons and God made lemonade. It says, you meant it for good, or you meant it for evil, but God meant it all, every detail, 
for good. He meant for Joseph's family, his chosen people, to be in Egypt. That's, that was the end of the story. He meant for his people to be in Egypt so that he could rescue them from slavery, right? And because he meant for his chosen people to be in Egypt, he therefore meant for Joseph to be in a position to bring them to Egypt. And because he meant for Joseph to be there, he therefore meant for Joseph to get to Egypt somehow. And because he meant for Joseph to get to Egypt somehow, he meant... For the brothers to sell him into slavery. He had a plan the whole time. See, even as his brothers meant to be rid of him, to do evil, to put a stop to these dreams and, and make sure they would never happen, they were actually doing precisely what God meant for them to do in order to bring about what God wanted. And you can see this sovereignty of God in, in all the details. I mean, think about it. The, the, the fact that Reuben, they've got Joseph in the hole, right? The fact that Reuben says, let's not kill him. The fact that he even comes up with that idea, but let's sell him into slavery. The fact that they listen to Reuben and decide to do that. The fact that the first caravan that passed, trading caravan that passed him was headed south to Egypt and not north to Assyria. The fact that he was sold to Potiphar instead of to somebody else who just happened to be in charge of a jail where these two high-ranking prisoners just happened to get thrown into. The fact that Potiphar's wife just happened to lie about it that landed him in the jail where the cupbearer and the baker were. The fact that the cupbearer and the baker just happened to have these dreams. The fact that Pharaoh just happened to have these dreams. The fact that the cupbearer just happened to remember Joseph from the time that he was in prison, the fact that Pharaoh called him up, all those little details were being directed by the hand of God. For the same is true for you. And just because Joseph's story is, is written out sort of, you know, year by year by year in the Bible doesn't mean it's any less true for you and me. Our lives are meticulously planned by God in all their detail. The Psalms say that all the days of your life were written in God's book before they ever happened. Every detail planned by God. It's incredible. I think it was Abraham Kuyper, the theologian, who said that there's not one square inch of the entire universe over which God does not cry, mine. True. But friends, there is also not one split second of your life over which God does not cry, mine. Now, now, what does that have to do with your job? What does that have to do with the assignments that God has given you in this life? It, it means that not a single one of them is a mistake. Any more than it was a mistake that Joseph was in Potiphar's house or in that prison or as Grand Vizier of Egypt. None of that was a mistake. God had a purpose for it all and he's got a purpose for it all in you no matter what the details are. Remember that God is sovereign over every detail of your life including your job. He did it on purpose. He holds you there for now on purpose. There's a reason for it. All of it. Third, third, number three, even in your job, even in your job, cultivate a quiet, patient trust in God. Cultivate a quiet, patient trust in God. I, I wonder if you can see that in, in Joseph. 
throughout this story. I mean, from, from, the, from the time that Joseph has those dreams and through everything his brothers and Potiphar and the cupbearer and Pharaoh put him through, through all of that, he just seems to have this remarkable confidence in the fact that God is sovereign over everything that's happening, point two, and that gives him a, a kind of quiet, patient trust in, in God. And even in the worst times, he seems to have this quiet, patient, trusting God. The thing is, the ending of the story is not obvious to him. Right? He doesn't have any idea what's, what's going to happen. You and I know the end of the story because we've read this a hundred times. I've already given you the end of the story. We, we, we know what the end of the story is going to be. He's going to be the grand vizier of Egypt and everything's going to turn out well. But I mean, when Joseph is down in that pit listening to his brothers eat chicken and plot whether to kill him or sell him into slavery... He doesn't know if he's going to live through the night. I mean, you think about the caravan coming down headed south and he's in the pit. He's hearing his his brothers negotiate with this caravan of traders about selling him into slavery. He's 17 years old. He's not like a, you know, wizened old man with a gray beard. And he's 17. He thinks they're they're selling me into slavery. I'm never going to see my family again. You think about him being bought on the in the slave market by this guy Potiphar. He, he insists on doing what is right through, through everything that Potiphar's wife does to him and offers him. And then he gets thrown in prison for doing what is, what is right. Then the moment comes when it looks like God is doing something, right? These cupbearer and the baker come with these dreams and God gives him the interpretation. And he, he, he actually says to the cupbearer, look, when, when Pharaoh gives you your job back and you're back in the presence of Pharaoh, remind him of me. Tell him about me. Tell him about my situation. Get me out of it. And then he sits there for two more years while the cupbearer forgets about him. I mean, what, what does he think during all that time? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that through all of that, he never loses his faith in God. And when circumstances are at their worst, he never loses his faith in God. He, he serves Potiphar well and, and heartily. He doesn't lose his integrity with Potiphar's wife. He, he takes care to, to let the cupbearer and the baker and Pharaoh himself know that interpreting dreams isn't just some special aptitude or ability of his. No, it's the work of God. He's unendingly faithful to God, even in the midst of every, everything. I think Joseph, in that quiet, patient trust in God, even in the midst of the worst circumstances, is an amazing model for us as Christians. In all the circumstances of our lives, but but certainly in particular with our jobs. I mean, for one thing, if you're a Christian, you you need to decide here and now, just like Joseph, that you're going to trust and obey God regardless of your circumstances. Whether you like the job or whether you don't like the job, you're, you're going to trust God. You're going to obey God. Even when you look around you and you don't see anything going well. The boss is on you or the clients are dropping you or the, the accounts are failing or this is happening or that. Or your children are a wreck. You know, you, even when everything is going wrong, decide right here and right now that you are going to trust and obey God. How easy would it have been? For Joseph, at a hundred points in this story, to go, you know what? Forget it. I'm done. Dreams, schmeems. I mean, God, you promised me in a dream that all these people were going to bow down to me and I was going to be king. But here I am in a prison, cleaning latrines, because 
I was faithful to you when that woman came on to me. Forget it. I'm done. The Egyptians seem to have some good gods of their own and maybe they'll do a better job with me than you're doing. He never does it. He never, ever does it. He remains faithful to God. You make the same decision. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on in your job or your life, remain faithful to God. Even when God doesn't give you what you long for in this life, trust Him and obey. And it's like, it's like Peter said to Jesus at one point, Lord, Lord, Lord where else are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of life. Where else are we going to go? Cultivate a quiet trust and confidence in God. Number four. Number four. Whatever your job, whatever your circumstances, learn to be joyful and serve well where God has placed you. Learn to be joyful and serve well where God has placed you. I mean, I think back to... Think back to all the different jobs that Joseph had through this whole thing. Shepherd, slave, head slave, prisoner, head prisoner, grand vizier of Egypt. He had about six different jobs throughout his career, so to speak, right? Tons of them. And in every single one of those jobs, in every single one of them, the Bible says that he did the job excellently and that God blessed him for it. Every single one of them says he did the job well and excellently. Why do you think he did that? Why did he do the job excellently, whether he was Grand Vizier of Egypt or like lowest prisoner in the jail? Why did he do it? Do you think it was because he liked the jobs? I don't. I don't think he enjoyed cleaning the latrines. and so I don't think he liked the mechanics of that job. Well, what about being Grand Vizier of Egypt? Do you think he liked that one? He liked the mechanics of that? It's probably better, but I don't think it was Joseph's dream job. How do I know that? Well, it's because we, the first time he sees his family, his brothers, what, what, does he, what does he do? He weeps. He doesn't say, yo, dudes, look at this. Let the throne and the palace and this rocking. Come visit, come visit. Then he weeps. And I think it's because more than he wanted to be the grand vizier of Egypt, he wanted to be home with his family. He wanted to see his mom and his dad and his little brother Joseph. He goes to great lengths to say, just bring me Joseph. I want to see Joseph. Or, or, uh, Benjamin, sorry. Bring, bring little Benjamin. I want, to see, I want to see Benjamin. He didn't want to be Grand Vizier of Egypt. He wanted to be home. He wanted to be a shepherd with his father and his mother. But he did those jobs excellently. Why? It was not so much because he loved the job. It was because he loved the God who had placed him in that job. Look, the same thing's true for you. You do the job that God has given you to do, not because you love the job, but because you love the king who gave you the job. I, li- I like to think about this in sort of military terms, right? I mean, imagine that, imagine that you are who you are as a Christian, right? G- Jesus, the king, has has sort of reinvaded a rebellious world, right? The the world rebels against him, you and me included. We raise our fists to God and we say, we don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to have authority over us. And so we sin and what we deserve is is death. We deserve for the great high king to destroy us, like like take us to the ground, right? That's what a king does with, with rebels, roll in the tanks and destroy the rebels. That's what we deserve. 
for rebelling against God. But Jesus comes, he reinvades the world, and, and he, he gives mercy, right? He offers you the hand of mercy, and he says, if you'll take my hand, if you'll put your faith in me, and if you'll repent of your sins, then my life will count for yours. I'll stand as your substitute in my life. My life stands for you. The life that you should have lived from the very beginning, I did that. That can stand for for you when you're judged by God. My death can stand for you. You deserve to die. That's the penalty of your sins, but but you take my hand in faith, my death can stand for you. It'll pay the penalty for, for what you owe, for your rebellion against against God. And I've risen from the dead and you take my hand, you're going to rise right along with me. First to newness of life right now. And then later on in the resurrection, I'll even raise your, your dead body back to, back to life. He gives you all of that. Right. And then, and then, then even more amazingly, right. As a Christian, you, you, you get a summons from the King and you walk up to the King and he's on his throne and you love him, right. Because he's, because he's done this for you. He saved you from hell. He died for you, lived for you, rose for you. He's given you everything. I mean, you, 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 and he says, he says, I, I, I've got an, I've got an assignment for you. I, I have this grand plan that's working out through through the entire world, right? And, and, and I'm I'm bringing the whole thing to a to a conclusion, and, and I want you to be a part of that. And you're thinking, that's awesome. This also, I mean, I mean, I should have been crushed by the king and his armies of angels, but now I'm being invited. I'm being given not just the gift of life and then stuck on a shelf somewhere, but I'm actually being invited into the service of the king. I'm being invited to join his army in working out this grand plan throughout history. He's asking me to serve him. And the king looks at you and says, my child, here's your part in the plan. I want you to go over there and start digging a ditch. Until I tell you otherwise. I, what? What servant worth his salt looks at the king and says, Are you kidding me? I mean, for crying out loud, I wanted to be a tank commander, buddy. And then when nothing is forthcoming from the king, there's no change of orders, what servant worth his salt goes off kicking the dirt like, fine, dig the ditch. You're not going to do that. I mean, for some of you, it's like exactly the opposite. The Lord looked down at you and said, I want you to become a tank commander. And you went, I would rather dig a ditch. But if Jesus has done all of that for you and called you into his service instead of destroying you, if you're a faithful, loving servant of him, you don't, you don't do that. No, you jump up and down and say, Lord, the king, I am so happy to serve you in whatever way you want me to. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to, I'm going to dig the best ditch that has ever been done. I'm going to command the best tank army that's ever been commanded until you tell me to do something else. That's how you respond to a summons. From the king. Not by being bitter about it. Serve well. Wherever the king has deployed you for this season of your life. Learn to be joyful and serve well where God has placed you. Here's number five. Last one. Just leave the results to God. Leave the results to God. And be content with being irrelevant. Leave the results to God and be content with being Irrelevant. I think so much discontent 
with our jobs, so much of the trouble with our jobs is caused by our desire to be awesome, to be recognized, to make a name for ourselves. So much discontent is caused by us trying to wrangle our circumstances and our jobs into a certain goal. And that is to make a name for ourselves. We want our jobs to matter because we want ourselves to matter. We want to change the world because we want people to recognize that we changed the world. We want to be significant because we want people to recognize that we're significant. We want to make money because we want people to recognize that we've made a lot of money. We we want whatever it is in your own heart to happen because we want people to recognize in us that we made that whatever happen. But you know, when you consider the story of Joseph... It's actually shocking how irrelevant he actually turned out to be in the story of the Bible. And that's especially shocking when you consider that he wound up ruling the greatest superpower of the day. Egypt is second in command of the whole thing. Only with respect to the throne was he less than Pharaoh. But he winds up in the story of the Bible just being shockingly irrelevant. Let me show you what I mean by that. The story of Genesis from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 50 is really the story of how God gave some promises to Abraham at first and then through the generations how those promises are passed down and worked out in the lives of several different people as the generations roll. And so what you see is the promises come to Abraham, and then when Abraham dies, the promises sort of fall, sort of like a football, to to Isaac. Isaac catches him, and when Isaac dies, a football passes through some shenanigans, yes, to Jacob, right? That's surprising. It doesn't always happen exactly like you think it's going to happen. And and then with Jacob, you you realize that Jacob is, is coming to death, and he's got 12 sons. And for a lot of the book, you're actually wondering, well, which of Jacob's sons does the does the football of God's promises fall to? Right? Who, who gets it? And you're thinking, well, probably Reuben, because Reuben's the oldest, and that's generally how this thing works. Well, it turns out, and one of the chapters, nope, not going to be Reuben, because he, he sins, and you know the football doesn't, doesn't fall to him. Well, okay, well, maybe it's, maybe it's Judah, or maybe it's Simeon. Nope, not them, for various reasons. You can read about that later. All kinds of reasons why it doesn't happen. And, and, and then, 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 you see this little guy, Joseph, right? Oh, look, it's Joseph, and he's got a coat of many colors, and there's the dreams. And oh, look at him. There he goes to Egypt, and there he goes. He's going to be, he's going to be the king of Egypt. Clearly, all the promises of God are falling to Joseph. So the story of Genesis from, from like chapter 12 until chapter 50 it is just drilling into your mind. That the promises of God go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You need to do that with me about three times so it drills in your mind. You ready? Go. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Faster. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now turn to Matthew 1. Go ahead. Matthew 1. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then in Matthew 1, you get to the genealogy of Jesus, which is what all those promises were headed for in the first place, right? This is the football. And look what happens in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you go right into the mantra. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father... 
of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah. He's gone. He's gone. Joseph isn't even mentioned. Not even mentioned. He's, he's just skipped. I mean, after all that, 14 chapters of Genesis, he gets the longest bio of anybody in the book of Genesis. He rises to become the grand vizier of all Egypt. He is, when it really, really matters, finally skipped and ignored and surprisingly irrelevant. Friends, it's just another reminder to us as Christians of God's sovereignty. Just another reminder to us of God's sovereignty. You need to be content as a Christian with being a pawn in God's game. Maybe God will make you a king. Maybe he'll make you a queen. Maybe he'll be a knight or a rook or something else that's really important on the board. But you need to be content with being a pawn. You need to be content with God saying to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a faithful father and husband. I want you to be a faithful mother and wife. I want you to work this job for for 40 years. Is it going to change the world? Nope. Nope, it's going to change you. It's going to make you more like Jesus. And when we all gather together in heaven, the angels are going to rejoice because that happens. Oh, brothers and sisters, trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in His sovereignty. And don't put your faith in some outcome or some thing that you want God to get for you. Put your faith in God. You ever wonder why God is so unpredictable with us in our, in our lives? I mean, why don't we get like a weekly update from heaven? Like, here's what's going to happen to you. I mean, it would make life easier, but, but God seems to just have it in for us that he's going to be unpredictable. Is this going to happen and then that's going to happen and this and that. And da, 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 da. Why does he do that? It's so you'll cling to him and not to some inviolable life plan that he's given you. Brothers and sisters, whether it goes well for you or bad, whether it goes according to your plan or not, cling to him and love him and trust him. He has a plan for every single detail of your life, including your job. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we stand in awe of your sovereignty. The fact that every detail of our lives is orchestrated by you. The fact that not, not one thing happens in our lives. Not one thing comes to us in our lives that doesn't come from your sovereign hand. Now, Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to know that you who are sovereign over all are also love. And that everything you do, everything that's happening in our lives, you are working together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to rest in that and find joy and peace in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.